0: In Colossians today. And it also covers two chapters today. It's uh, the whole second half of the letter is happening in our last series, our last uh, sermon from the series. And that's largely because this whole uh, back portion of the letter is specific application of all the teaching that he's done. So he packs it real tight in the first two chapters. He gives us a bunch of doctrine in the first chapter. chapter, and then he gives a uh, kind of theological application to our lives in the second chapter, and then he gets very practical in the third chapter, and by the fourth chapter, it's uh, kind of like the parting remarks and all of that. So this is the second half of the letter to the book of Colossae, or to the letter, uh, to the church of Colossae, and uh, the last in our series. And uh, as you recall, um, this is that small little church in an out-of-the-way town that Paul decided to take care in writing a letter to because he noticed that the teaching about G- who Jesus was and how we relate to him was getting off and he knew if that teaching gets off eventually people are going to start believing the wrong thing and they might still have a semblance of Christ, Christian doctrine but they won't have the life that flows from Christ and that's the thing is such an awesome thing that if we if we're ever at a spot where it's like we're under the kind of Christian doctrine bubble and yet aren't experiencing life with jesus it's a great time for us to go back to colossians and read it and say am i actually encountering jesus the way i was intended to encounter jesus or is is this all in the name of christ but it's actually subtly become something else and that's what paul's checking them on and uh protecting them from so That's where we find ourselves. Uh, You'll remember that he described Jesus in chapter one, in all his majesty, and all his supremacy, and said he's the power, the force, he's the beginning and the end, he's everything. And in the second chapter, uh, as we moved forward from the first chapter, he begins to apply that and say, when you came to Jesus, you didn't have anything. You had nothing at all. All there was was Jesus. That's it. And he's like, if you want to stay in Jesus, and if you want to grow, be built up and established, It doesn't happen by bringing something to the table now. It's the same way that we started. We always come with nothing, with hands open and say, I need you. I need you. You're everything. And so that gospel, the gospel of he took care of us, he died for us, he was risen for us, that God dependence of we come empty-handed is life. That's not just the entrance into the kingdom and then from there on out we have to man up and figure out how to be good Christians. It doesn't work that way. That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what that means is that gospel, the power of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation is when we get on our faces before God and say, I have nothing, Father. Jesus, you did it all and you did it all to bring me into the kingdom and you'll do it all to keep me in the kingdom today. And we learn to live in that place of dependence. That's what Paul has said so far in the book. Then at that point, he transitioned into some really practical stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about. Today, So join me in prayer, and we'll get into chapter 3. God, I thank you that words that you put on someone's heart to give to a church a couple thousand years ago are words that are so relevant for us today. Because, you know, as, as fallen humans in need of a Savior, some things don't change. You know, yeah, there was no internet back then, and uh, people weren't driving cars, and there wasn't electricity But uh, sin was sin, and uh, we were selfish back then, and we're selfish now. And we needed love back then, and we need love now. And you are the only one who could ever save humanity. You're the only one who could ever bring life. And so we ask that that same message uh, of, uh, of Paul to the church in Colossae would be completely imprinted on us today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've ever been stuck in a negative mental pattern, some sort of detrimental negative pattern or some sort of lifestyle behavior and you've tried to break free from that uh, or you've watched someone do that successfully, if that happens successfully, there's a moment in that whole journey where something happens, the momentum shifts. You kind of make it over the hill. So uh, if you watch a child who thinks that they can't study say, I'm, I'm not a good student, I'm not smart, I can't study, I'm, I'm no good at school, and they keep getting grades that, that reflect that, and, and they're just kind of stuck in that, uh, no, I'm no good kind of mentality. Then there's a moment where if there's enough discipline, it, it, self-discipline in that, and they start to see the results, and okay, on this test I studied, and I actually got a C instead of an F, you know, not bad. And then in the, the next time they studied again and they got a B, and then there's that moment where they actually get a really, really good grade and their parents get extremely excited and the kid starts to think for a second and say, wait a minute, I don't have to be that person who I thought I was, who wasn't smart. Instead, if I'm working and I'm applying and I'm going after this, I can actually do this. It might take me a little more effort than the person next to me. It might be hard, but I can actually do this and something shifts in the way that child views themselves. And and, and as far as what they view as possible, this is the same thing when people are caught in addictions. When people are caught in addictions and they've been struggling with this addiction and they're kind of in this place where they're hopeless about it because they kind of see themselves as one who can't push past it. And it's just too hard, it's too overwhelming. But then there's that moment where this would have been a situation where I would have fallen and I didn't. And that felt pretty good. And as we keep moving forward, there's enough. At at some point, the person says, you know what? The fact that I can live free feels better than the fact that I could feel a quick high right now. And so the fact that I'm feeling good... The fact that others are noticing that I'm trimming weight or the fact that uh, others are saying, hey, you're being really kind these days somehow is a better feeling than whatever it is that I would reach for to satisfy myself in an instant because I'm beginning to believe and I'm beginning to see something as, as possible. And then you start actually really wanting to go the other direction. And what changes is the desire of the heart. Changes. So instead of just constantly saying, I really, really want this, but I'm not going to do it, or instead of that child saying, I really, really don't want to study, I just want to play video games, there's a moment where it's like, I really, really want a good grade because I like being a person who can succeed. And so even though I'd still want to do this thing here and not study, there's a bigger prize, and I believe it's possible, and the motivation grows, and there's something available. This is a little bit, what it is, the way that Paul is describing right now what's possible for the church in Colossae. So if you turn turn to chapter 3, you can see he's just said, all there is is Jesus. You don't have to work to be, your, your traditions aren't what make you impressive to God. Your observation of the law isn't what makes you uh, impressive to God. Your uh, spiritual knowledge isn't what makes imp- you impressive to God. All there is is Jesus and what he did on the cross. And if you can lose yourself inside of Jesus, then you can know that you can be redefined in your own eyes as far as who you are. And then he starts off just like this in, in chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. And, of course, the assumption is that you have been raised with Christ. That's what the whole teaching has been about. That if you're a believer, you no longer live. There is no life. All there is is Jesus. You are now in Jesus. And he's saying, if you are actually alive in Jesus, if that's the reality, if, that's how, if, that's, if you say you're a Christian and you've been raised with Christ, if that's true, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. If you have an NIV, it probably says, set your hearts on things that are above. And, uh, and basically what it's saying is your desire, your yearning, your seeking, the thing that you're hungering for, it's time for it to switch based on seeing who you actually are. And so that child who, who I don't want to study. I'm not smart. It's not worth it. I don't want to study. What if you were brilliant? What if you knew that you were brilliant? And, and that you could get great grades, you know? Well, then maybe you would want to study in order to do that a little more. What about the person who's struggling? I have this addiction to food where I'm constantly reaching to food. And it's, what if that wasn't defining who you are? What if you were a disciplined person? What if you actually felt good and vital and alive in, in being healthy? Then it would change how you felt in that moment. And what Paul's saying is, if you are alive in Jesus, all of the lesser things of this earth, don't worry about them. Begin to seek the things that are, of, that are above. They're going to actually satisfy you. You don't have to feel like, you know, the kingdom stuff, the God stuff, I know it's there, but I don't really want that. I want this stuff. And there's that tension. And he's saying, you need to remember who you are now. You are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you can be satisfied. With the things of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, Secondarily, you have to set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So when I don't see myself as alive eternally in Christ, it's really easy to try to satisfy myself with earthly things in the moment. But what he's saying is, there's a there's a deeper level of satisfaction from the the very core of who I am all the way out to the extremities, my fingernails, from my spirit to my fingernails, I can be fulfilled in God. And if I believe that I'm awake in God, then I have to begin to, 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 okay, okay. I'm going to hunger and thirst for something different. And he says that's a controllable thing. Set your hearts on. Seek. That's a command to change the focus of our heart, to change the desires of our heart, and that he can do that. As he awakens us in Christ, it's not just self-discipline at that point, it's an awakening of who we are in Christ. And he says, But if that's the case, then you also have to set your mind. So anytime that we're gonna overcome some sort of negative uh thought process in our in our minds, we have to begin to meditate on what's true, not on what's false. And sometimes that takes work. People who have come out of a really abusive relationship where they were raised in an environment that was extremely harsh. Or maybe they were in a country where there was no freedom at all and it was very oppressive. When emancipation happens, when the bondage is broken free and that child who was in that abusive environment is rescued and is brought out. I have uh, uh, some friends right now who um, they serve with an organization called ZOE in Thailand. And w- what they do is uh, he's a, he was a detective here in the States, and he's over there working with the Thai police to rescue people, uh, rescue children out of brothels and out of other situations where they've been trafficked. And so he's freeing these uh, children who are slaves. His wife, on the other hand, works back at the compound where they bring the kids to. And when they bring the kids back to the compound, there's this whole thing that has to happen where they have to retrain the way the mind of the child works. First of all, they have to train them in all sorts of basic things that they were never brought up in because they didn't have parents to, to train them. But secondarily, they live in an environment of fear. They live out of that environment of of abuse, and they have to learn what it's like to be free. They have to learn how to think differently and to think that certain things are available that weren't available before. Just busting the chains off of someone's arms doesn't make them free internally. That makes them free externally, but it takes a long time to change the mindset into a mindset of freedom. And you know, when, when uh, they first started figuring out through the calculations uh, a couple thousand years ago that the earth was probably round and it wasn't necessarily flat, it took a really, really long time for navigation, nautical navigation, to actually come to terms with that reality. Even though they were like, we're pretty sure the earth's round, it was like they were still afraid that they might drop off the end, because they're, they're, they're actually. it took time to get the mind to actually begin to process that. And in the same way, for that child who's been abused, they might now be in a relationship with someone who really loves them and really cares for them, but they're so used to the abusive relationship that they can't be healthy in that relationship because they're still stuck in that frame of mind. And this is what God is saying. Set your hearts on things. If you have been raised with Christ, then you can desire good things, and you will be satisfied by those good things. You don't have to desire bad things. You can actually be satisfied by the good things. Secondarily, you have to work at keeping your mind focused on the reality on the reality of what the gospel says. And then he goes on to describe specifically what that reality says. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for, this is why, you have died. First realization. Think about that for a second. Just that realization. You have died. I want I, I want us to, to sit there and think about this. This is a good thing <laughs> according to Paul. Not a bad thing. I'm dead. I, there's there's a bunch of films out there, a bunch of movies that kind of describe. I, I, I remember there was one that was out a long, long time ago about there's this whole plot and they never show you in the movie that the person who's in the movie is dead until the end of the movie. And then they re, you realize looking back, oh, the whole time this person was dead and they were just a ghost. And they thought they were alive, you know. And, and everything makes sense once they realized, oh, I was dead dead okay and what paul's saying is the reality of the gospel the truth of the gospel if i believe that i have been resurrected with christ and i've been buried with christ then what that means is i actually literally not physically but literally my identity no longer exists there is one identity i have been risen with christ i no longer live jesus does I have to meditate on that truth, and I have to think and imagine what that would be like in order to begin to live in the freedom that that can bring my life. That can bring amazing freedom to my life, but I have to learn to think that way and to meditate on it like a child who's been freed from that abusive situation has to learn to think, wait a minute, I don't have to cower in fear expecting that someone's going to lash out on me for just being me. I can actually be me and I can be real and honest and transparent healthy things for a relationship but you have to come to terms with that and in the same way in our relationship with Christ everything that I tend to worry about and sweat about and think about in my life is because I think I still exist and if I realize that I don't exist that Jesus exists all I have to worry about is Jesus I don't have to worry about me it changes everything and the deepest Desires of my heart can be completely and totally satisfied under that mentality. But I have to meditate on that. I have to, um, I have to set my mind on it. I have to say, what would it be like if I actually was dead? It means, that, it means that those cravings that I have, those things that I desire that are lesser, the earthly things, they're feeding a dead man. You know, <laughs> like, what am I serving? That thing doesn't exist, it's gone, it's a vapor in the wind, it's a false reality. What is, what's alive is Christ. And those things that, that feed into Christ are the things that are going to breathe life into my being because I'm a part of Christ. And so the things that would feed into Christ, feed into me. And if I feed into that, and if I focus on that, there's life and there's vitality. And I love how this, how this kind of closes it out here. It says, um, verse 4, or verse 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice that. Basically, it's saying, we we don't even know who we are. We don't even see ourselves. We're gone. But we will reappear. We will reappear when Christ reappears. And at that point, we'll know, oh, that's who I am. That's my new name. That's who I am. That's the reality of who I am. Everything here that speaks to me about you're good enough, you're worth it, you deserve it, you should really enjoy this, you need this, all of that. I don't know how many commercials I saw this this past week or two around the Super Bowl that We're focused on you. Our whole business plan is for you. You're the center of what we care about at this insurance company. We all know that's junk. It's not actually focused on us. It's focused on, on profit for the company. And yet they think that they can sell the product by telling me that they're focused on me. And guess what? They can because I think that I still exist. So I think it's super important that everything should be focused toward me. And that feeds into a false reality. And and, and in that false reality, it's a painful false reality where I deceive myself into thinking that I can be satisfied if I focus on myself. But what what turns out is it just keeps leading me down a road of lies that never satisfies me. When the reality is, I'm lost in Christ and it's a beautiful thing. Some of us like to be invisible. There's a few of us who, who want to disappear, who want to be hidden. It says our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. And there's a few of us who would rather not ever be seen. So there's some of us who are that. That's not me. Um, there's, there's some people who are like that. My wife is one of those, you know, where she just would rather not be seen at all, ever you know, just kind of disappear. She had this friend um, in, uh, in Ephrata at our previous church who used to remind her, and it was an awesome reminder for Jen. She, and uh, she would say to her, hey, Jen, if you're going to hide, make sure you hide in Jesus. Huh. You know what that means? For, for many of us, we don't want to hide at all. You know, for many of us, we want things to be our way and our thing, and we want to be seen and all of that. And for, for us, it's like, You need to hide in Jesus. And then there's the others who want to hide. There's fear or there's whatever, just that ability like I'd really rather not. And for them, it's, hey, don't just hide. Hide in Jesus. And sometimes when you look at like Esther, remember Esther? She kind of seemed to be like someone who liked to hide, you know? But it's hide in Jesus, in the calling that he has for you. If Christ exists and you only exist inside of him, maybe hiding means you don't have an identity, which means you don't have fear. Because what are you afraid of? There is no you. Only be in Jesus. Which means if Jesus is calling you to this, then you have to go into that because all there is is Jesus. If I'm back here and saying, I don't really think I can do that, or it doesn't matter. There is no you. There's only Jesus. You only exist inside of Jesus. Go where Jesus is. And if that requires courage and stepping up, then go with Jesus. He's got you. If that requires humility and meekness and coming down, then then good. Get tucked down, bend down, get underneath Jesus, you know? And, and that's the whole thing. He's like, My life is hidden. Don't get too high, don't get too low. In Christ, in Christ. That's all there is, is Jesus. So, verse five then, oh, and, and, and we will be revealed in that where we fit. And then, verse five, he says, Put to death, therefore. And you remember the therefore is always there to tell us, to ask us, What is it there for? And it's since. All the, since we're setting our mind on Him because we're only revealed inside of Him, then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so there's the assumption that the earthly stuff is still there, which of course it is, right? I mean, I still have this false reality that's left over, that's lingering, that every day the entire world around me reinforces is that I still exist. I see it when I look in the mirror. And my eyes tell me that I still exist and there's an identity outside of Jesus. My family thinks that. The commercials really tell me that. My boss thinks that for sure. you know. And everyone else thinks there's, a, there's this person who I can lean into, who I can tell should do this or should receive this or should be this. And so it's very easy then to focus on myself. And when I focus on myself, then I want to satisfy myself. And what Paul's saying is, remember the reality you don't exist outside of Christ. Therefore, put to death the stuff that's earthly. Begin to learn to live in the reality of who you actually are. Because the earthly stuff, all it is is a distraction. And it just kind of, at first it seems innocent enough to kind of dabble with things that are focused on just my own cravings. But what ends up happening is, is as soon as I start feeding the self-desires then I start living more in the reality of the fact that I am alive. You know, I'm alive. I'm alive outside of Christ. And so I start wanting and desiring more. And it's just like any addictive behavior. The more you feed it, the more you think about it. So if I dabble with that, making you know, for a second it's about me, then the next time it's going to be real easy to make it about me and so on and so forth. And so what he's saying is, You have awesome life in Jesus, incredible life in Jesus. Let go of that other junk. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. It's not going to feed you. And so he names it. You know, he talks about uh, the things here. He says sexual immorality, trying to find satisfaction through intimacy or through some encounter, impurity, passion. That might be uh, vengeance or anger in that way or evil desire and covetousness, materialism that wants what they have and all of that. And he says all this stuff is idolatry is what it says, which is idolatry, verse 5. It means that I'm making that stuff my God. Because that's what's going to satisfy me. And so the question is, what desire am I feeding? The reality or the false reality? The false reality is when I satisfy myself with things of this earth. The true reality is when God is my satisfaction. And so I set my heart on him and I set my mind on him. On account of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. God is a jealous God and he won't allow us to stay in a place of idolatry forever. And he will cleanse. And then he moves on, okay, and he talks about in verse 7 down to verse 11, he starts to switch and say, if in fact I am alive only in Christ, and if in fact Bob is alive only in Christ, and if in fact Kevin is only alive in Christ, and if in fact Betty is only alive in Christ, then what that means is, is there's one identity, And my identity is a shared identity with everyone else. Which should really change the way I see everyone else around me. It changes the way that I relate to everyone. So if the theology, the truth of the fact that we as Christians are only alive inside of Jesus, then that should change the whole framework in which I see the person next to me. I don't see them as another identity apart from me. I see us with a shared identity inside of jesus and so anything short of that changes the way i interact it would be a little bit like my finger being mad at my elbow if we had issues you know we're only alive in christ right and so doris whatever it is that that she's called to and who she is in christ and who i am in christ if we have tension between us that's silly because we're the same person we're inside of jesus and it's counterproductive to our lives and to our reality to live in any place of tension. And this is, this is what Paul says. If you are dead and if Christ is alive in you, not only put to death the things that feed your selfish desires, but then also he says in, in verse 7, In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Now notice these ones don't focus on satisfying myself. They focus on those re- interpersonal relationships. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. Ah, this is awesome. This is saying... Together, we are in his image, and the old self is about me. The new self is that we together are in him, and as we grow in that knowledge, it should change the way we interact with each other. Fridays are um, uh, the day that um, I'm supposed to take off, and I, on occasion I do, and um, there, there, there's uh, Jen and I try to make a discipline of uh, going out to eat or something uh, Uh, doing something together because the boys are at school, which is awesome. So it's like date day, you know, and uh, we'll either go out to breakfast or go out to lunch um, on Friday. And the other day, two weeks ago on Friday, we went to um, a Starbucks to get a cup of coffee together. And uh, we were sitting there in this Starbucks and it was blistering cold out. And it was it was one of those freak little blizzard conditions. The snow started coming down. there was two Fridays ago. I don't know if you experienced that. and the snow started whipping down real quick and everything. and the well there was this, there was this young girl who was in Starbucks, you know like a uh, college age girl maybe or something, and uh it was a real full house, and she comes out to the door and she opens up the door, obviously waiting for someone to come pick her up and she's sitting there holding the door open, just kind of waiting and it was about she was there for at least. You know, 45 seconds just holding the door open. And the wind is whipping through. It was like a wind tunnel in Starbucks. And finally, some lady behind me was like, honey. Are you going to leave the door open or what, you know? And uh, and the girl, uh, like, didn't hear her. It didn't seem like. She just kind of, like, eventually let the door open and went to the back door and did the same thing at the back door, and the wind starts moving through. Well, the funny thing is is that the door, it was so windy that it happens here with these doors that sometimes the wind will just keep the door open, and it won't shut. So even though she had walked to the back, she had the back door open, and the other the wind was blown open. So it's straight, just like, it's ripping. It's arctic wind whipping through the place, you know? and and finally I get up to go shut the door and the guy comes past me and he's like I got it I got it and he goes and shuts the door and he walks past me and he's like I was wondering we finally figured it out and I'm like what and he's like where the center of the universe is <laughs> and I was like Oh, wow. (laughs) And what he's saying is, of course, is this girl thought that the center of the universe was her and that everything revolved around her and completely oblivious to how she was affecting everyone around her. And the whole point of the book of Colossians is this, is that Jesus is the center of the universe. And that if I get outside of that, it completely changes the way I interact with the world and the way I interact with you and the way we interact with each other is that when I think I still exist, when I think I'm the center of the universe, you do something to disrespect me? Because I'm the center of the universe. You can't disrespect me. I'm my own person here. You, I, and and when, when the cravings are that strong, I have to engage him because it's about me. But it's not about me. All there is is Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is that the way I was designed to function was inside of Jesus. And if I can receive the forgiveness of Christ... And if I can believe that I'm actually united with Christ, then I can begin to let go of that false reality. And I can become very attuned to what Jesus wants. And I can be someone who's attending Christ, who's looking for the desires of Christ, and I can become a servant of Christ, and when I do, I find I come awake, and I come alive, and it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, and I don't want to have boundaries that separate me from you. I want to be with you. I want us to work together in this, and so when you've done something to hurt me, I want to forgive you. I want to restore things as quickly as possible, which is why he says right here, do not lie to one another, and the lie is not just about telling something that isn't true. It's about living in a false reality. Don't act like you exist when you don't. That's a lie. When we have that malice and that anger and that tension, that's lying to each other. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember that one? The lie that they told? And the lie was, we're going and selling our field, and we're going to bring all the stuff from the field, or the property, <clears throat> and we're going to give it to the church, and the church can do whatever they want with it. And... What they lied about was the fact that they said that they were giving all the money to the church. Um, but they didn't. They held back some of it. And Paul, Peter says to him, he says, it was your property, right? You can do whatever you want with it. And even when you sold it, the money was still yours. You could do whatever you want with it. It's yours. But what you were trying to show was that you were all in, one with everyone else, and you wanted that to be received and understood. And yet, that wasn't the actual reality. And you're making a liar of God in that thing. Because now everyone around who's hearing the name of Christ and saying the church is one together, when we act and say, when we say that we're one, and yet we act very different than that, then there's, a, there's an inherent hypocrisy within the church that is not about the name of Jesus. And it doesn't glorify him. Instead, it glorifies me. Me. And so this is, that's, that's living in a false reality, which is why he ends that whole thing by saying this in verse 4. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There is just Christ, that, but Christ is all and in all. And so uh, there's all the, all the divisions that we have. You know, all the natural barriers that we set up that that separate us. You know, there's this nationality or that nationality. There's this age demographic or this generation. There's, you know, in Galatians, Paul has a very similar phrase where he says, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, the gender divide. You know, all the different things that identify who I am. Whatever my Facebook page says I am, I'm a guy who's this old, who does this or who does whatever. We identify who we are apart from everyone else. And he says, it's all I. All there is is Jesus. All the things that we would say separate us and divide us, they don't divide us. What there is is Christ. It doesn't mean that those things, those, those things that are distinct and unique about us are unimportant. Oh, they're, they're amazing. But they're the colors of the rainbow of Jesus' character. They have nothing to do with me and my own unique identity. It means that all of those things are inherent within Jesus. And that it should reveal the glory of God that when you are uniquely designed the way you are and I'm uniquely designed the way I am, when we come together in the common shared identity of Christ, what it does is it puts on wonderful display who Jesus actually can be and who he is, you know, when, when we live together in that. And uh, that's, an, that's an important kind of discussion for us to have because those sort of distinctions right now are distinctions that in our world have become a really, really, really big deal when it comes to gender distinctions, when it comes to sexuality distinctions, when it comes to all these different things. Those things right now are distinctions that we as a world use to personally identify ourselves apart from other people. And it's all a reality, or it's all a false reality. All there is, is Christ. What honors Christ, reveals Christ. What doesn't honor Christ, Christ doesn't reveal Christ. And all of the diversity among us can be beautiful inside of Christ. All the diversity among us is tension outside of Christ. And so here we go. Uh, This is where he says um, what it should look like in verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen and holy and beloved. If you are loved and you are cared for and it's all good, then this is what it should look like. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Meekness patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful be thankful and this is the moment where we realize that he's put us together intentionally and that I need the peace of Christ in my heart if I will treat you in that same identity. If you are in Christ and I'm in Christ, then I have to know that I am dearly loved. I have to have the peace of Jesus because in the moment when I'm tempted to get my stuff up because I think I'm being treated unjustly, I have to remember, He loves me enough that I can let go of that false identity. And I can trust Him. He's got me. And there's peace enough to forgive, to move forward. Once that happens, it says that there is a peace of Christ that, that can dwell in us. And then he says this. He says, let the, in the next verse, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And the word of Christ, of course, is the thing that defines reality for us as opposed to the false reality. We were just praying last night on Saturday nights with the kids. We um, spend um, some time on Saturday night praying and thanking God about the things that we're thankful for throughout the week and one of the things that we were praying for was that we're thankful for the word of God for the Bible because we realized that if we didn't have the Bible to bring us back to reality that we, our minds would get so construed over time we'd just get messed up about what reality is because it'd be based on what I think which is based on what I desire But when we look at this thing, it tells us what the truth is, regardless of what I desire or regardless of where I'm going. And so what he's saying here is once we're at the spot where the peace of Christ is ruling in us and we can actually care for each other, be compassionate and forgiving. Then there's a moment. And this is the big moment that Paul hopes for, because remember, what's happening to the church in Colossians In Colossae is that there's the false teaching that's happening. And he wants them to be protected from that false teaching. And he's like, if you guys stay connected to each other because you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, and if you can stay connected to each other, then the word of God can dwell richly among you. In other words, you can begin to, and he says it here, you can begin to teach one another and admonish one another in wisdom. And you can sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to each other with thankfulness in your heart to God. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it can be really difficult to speak truth to another person, even if it's really helpful for them, because it's like an affront to the pride? You know, that person's in a spot where you're like, you know they just got off a little bit on hearing the truth and they're your friend and you love them and you want them to know the truth, but you know that if you say that to them, they're just going to be offended by you because what, are you better than me? You know, that kind of feeling. And it's that's not... What we're looking for, if we still exist outside of Christ, then there's a competitive thing around the religious world about who knows more and who's the one who's the teacher and who has the special wisdom. And that's all the junk that he's confronting in Colossi. And instead what he's saying is, if my identity's in Christ, then what I have the ability to do is instead of having pride, all there is is Jesus. And then we start teaching back and forth to each other. And I'm reminding you of what I'm learning. And you're telling me where you think, I don't know if that's right on, dude. And like, but it's not about my identity over yours, or us comparing to each other. It's about the word of Christ dwelling richly among us. We are constantly being washed in the water of the word. We're encouraging each other. The songs and the hymns, it keeps pointing us toward Jesus, and we keep pointing each other toward Jesus, and we remind each other it's all about Jesus. And when one of us is down, the other one's picking him up, and we don't have to be offended by that. And if we do get offended, it's okay, we can forgive, because it's all about Jesus. And the more it gets focused on Jesus, the more availability there is in actually communicating the gospel to each other day in and day out, because we didn't need the gospel just back then. I need it right now, and you can give it to me, and I can give it to you. But if we still have our own pride and our own identity, we're going to feel weird about it. But if we let go of that, then there's the ability for us to truly communicate that to each other. So, uh, And then he gives a few parting specifics about how that works out in basic relationships, in the, particularly in the family. Um, I, and basically when that's happening, by the way, in verse 17 he says, so whatever you do... Whether you're teaching, whether that's in word or in deed, do everything in the, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, which is really, really key to the community being able to interact appropriately. Because if I go over and I say something to Paul and say, hey, man, I see what's going on in your life here, but um, the, the Bible says this, and Paul's like, oh, okay, that was helpful. Thank you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good, you know? And if I take pride in that, instead of it being done in the name of Jesus, whoosh, We just separated. I just separated myself from the community and thought I was something special. And then it's not helpful. It's counterproductive. But if instead, Paul comes up to me after the service today and says, Tim, man, that was a great sermon. It was really helpful. We say, God's good. God's good. That's the gift he put in me. I think it's really helpful that there's people who are back in the nursery right now who are taking care of babies. And I can go back and say, you guys are awesome. And I should, and I should encourage them. And I should say, but it's God in you. It's the heart of God in you. It's Jesus who gets the praise. And as it's all about Jesus, and it's not about who does what or who does what, then we're building the name of Jesus, and it's okay to fully come out in our gifts and to fully encourage one another and not have it be about pride or shame, but have it be about Jesus. And that's when, you know, it can move and it can work. Now, the way that works out in practical relationships in our family um, is, uh, is right here, and this is one of those ones where if you read it without reading the rest of the book of Colossians, you're almost sh- assuredly going to get this wrong, okay? And I think this, these, are one of those, these are the kind of verses that people take wildly out of context without reading why they're there. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What is that about? What is that about? Well, that's about the fact that men are better than women, and so women should listen up. Right? I mean, isn't that what that's actually about? (laughs) Obviously, that's what can happen when reading a verse like that. What we understand is the entirety of this whole book says, dudes, you don't even exist. Ladies, you don't even exist. All that exists is Jesus. And if you want to encourage each other, and if you want to love each other, here's a few practical tips that are going to help you out. Ladies, if you're having a problem with your man, don't air it out on Facebook. You know, here, don't dishonor them or disrespect them by going and talking to your girlfriends about it instead of talking to them about it. Submit, come under, show respect and honor in this way that helps feed that thing that's the insecure, weak spot in the dude that doesn't always feel the security of manhood. Be sensitive to that thing. You know, encourage, instruct. Don't. We're not saying that he can handle it. We don't submit to the husband in the sense that he can handle it, so I just do whatever he says. What it is, is be respectful. Why? Why? Because he's weak and I'm weak, and we're trying to encourage and build each other up. And we trust this. Not that he can handle it or that I can handle it. He's not the one who can make my life better. Jesus makes my life good because my life is only in Jesus. So I honor Jesus by the way I honor him. And then he flips it, right? And he goes the other way here. And he says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. How tough is it when you come home from a day at work and you have felt disrespected, you felt like people have expected more of you than you can actually accomplish And so there's that tension in your life where you always want to feel like you did a good job and yet you can't actually do a good job. And there's that craziness at work where people are acting this way and that way and you can't get past it and things aren't working out right. And then you come home. And then you come home and there's that moment when you come home and it's just very easy to project all of the frustrations that you have from out there onto home life. And it's an easy target. Very easy target, where it's like, at least you guys should be getting it right. This is my domain here at home, you know. Here I can control it. Out there I can't, and i got to submit to things. That I should, but here I can control it. And then you project that on the home life. And what it's saying to, to husbands is, don't be harsh with your wives. It's not on them. And secondly, in, in verse 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Same thing. Don't, don't nitpick. Don't get harsh with. You know, we're leading and guiding, and, and that's very, very difficult. But all that's going on inside of the guy is that all the frustrations that are being pent up have to do with the fact that I still feel like I have my own identity. And I don't. I don't. And I don't have to worry about who I am and how good I look to the world or to my wife or to my kids or to anyone else or how satisfactory my life is or what I've accomplished or what I haven't. I don't have to worry about it because Christ accomplished all of it. And Christ can make everything right. And Christ can fix the problems that I can't fix. And instead of being angry, let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. Since as members of one body, my wife and my children and I are all called. And we're together in this. It's a very difficult thing. Starts, set your hearts and set your minds on things above. That's not just a do it this way. It's a when I learn to live in the reality of who I am in Jesus, it changes how I live here okay and then you, there's a few other practical ones before we leave we'll cover and that's just children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the lord it doesn't matter if you if you think your parents are nuts and they don't know what they're talking about it doesn't make any stipulations you know it doesn't say that all it says is if you want to honor the lord if you want to trust jesus don't worry about your own unique identity don't get all like bigger than you you're still a child in your parents home Honor them, obey them, because God is the one who takes care of it. He's the one who's got you. Trust God with that. It goes on to bosses, and it goes on to workers. This one for workers. If you work under a boss, this is for bond servants, but just if you work for someone else, listen. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So do what you're, what you're supposed to do at work, but listen, not by way of eye service, not just to look good, and not as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This is a big, big deal. Where do we look for validation? Not from our boss, not from our coworkers, not from our neighbors. We don't look for validation from anyone else. We work hard, but we work unto the Lord. And that's exactly what he says. He keeps going. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Inside of God, he sees it all. Work for him. And when you do, that doesn't mean that we say to my boss, like, I don't really care about you. I'm just working for God over here. No, 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 no. It means I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can for you as unto the Lord. I'm going to work to do the best I can. I'm not going to compromise my morals or my family or any of that stuff, but I am going to work hard and I'm going to expect God to bless when I work hard for you. But it's not going to be because I need your approval or need others to look at me to think I'm... As a matter of fact, everyone else might get mad at me for doing this, but it doesn't actually matter because I'm trusting God and I'm following His way for my life, which means I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to do what I need to do and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Amen? And then it says this, if you're in the position of power, if you are the master... In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, listen, treat them, treat your slaves or your employees, they're not slaves, justly and fairly. Notice what it does not say. It doesn't say give charity and compassion, justice and fairly. Why? Because you have a master too. We're all under the same master. In other words, this, don't ever act like your employee is less than you. Don't ever act like the person who you have more than is somehow less of a human than you are and less important than you are. We are all the same in the eyes of Jesus. And so if we are the person who's there in the middle of the night cleaning the building or we're the CEO of that organization in the eyes of God, we have the same boss. And so I better be able to look at that person and think that if I'm in their shoes in Christ or I'm over here leading in this way in Christ, we are the same and I better hope that that I can treat them the way I would want to be treated if I was in that situation. I don't need charity or handouts as if you're something better than me. What I need is for you to treat me humanely as if I'm a human with dignity like you are, right? All right. All of that is because we are in Christ and we are not outside of Christ. And all of it is brutal and difficult to actually live in, which is why Colossians 4.2, the next verse, is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And it tells us how we do it. There is one time in the entire New Testament that the word devoted, this says continue steadfastly. But if you have NIV, it says devote yourselves to prayer. It's the one time that word devoted is the actual word. There's one time in the entire New Testament where this word devoted to give yourself wholeheartedly, completely to one course of action is used as a command for the entire church. One time, and it's right here. If there's one thing we're to give ourselves to, devote yourselves to prayer. Why? Why? If I want my heart to be on things above, if I want my mind to be on things above, if I want to live in the reality with my brothers and sisters in Christ and in my family, if I want to live in that reality, it will not be by human effort. It will not happen. As soon as I have human effort, it's going to be about me. There's one way this happens. I dig into God with everything I got, and that happens in prayer. To yourself to prayer, saying, God, change my reality, change how I see myself, change what I want, change the way I deal with them, get my heart focused on that. help me to show them dignity, help me to live in the reality. I need to be in this spiritual reality with you. That's what prayer is, learning to live in the spiritual reality with God, as opposed to this physical reality that's based on my efforts devote yourself, wholeheartedly give yourself to prayer, to know God, to walk with God. And when you do, it'll transform every other part of your life. Every other part. Amen? Yes. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Do we have that, um, the statement on Jesus there at the end? We're going to read this together as our closer. You can stand with me. All right, we're going to say it together. This is our last time. We're not going to get to the hymn this time. Sorry. This will be our benediction and our closer. Let's all say it together. Jesus, the Creator who was before all, the Anointed One who was hoped for, the Light of the world, the Teacher who is truth, the Lamb who was slain, the Warrior who will win, and the King who has come. Jesus, He was born of a virgin. He taught the people. He was killed on a cross and buried with the dead and is risen. He is eternally alive. Jesus, he created everything and holds it all together by the power of his word. His shed blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation to Jesus is due all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Have a great week.